0: So we're in a, we've been going through the book of Matthew for well, well over a year now, and for the next like couple months, we're going through Matthew 9, 35, through Matthew 11, verse one. And so we're doing a sub-series, Luke's, Luke's preaching it for the last two weeks, and I'm gonna continue this morning, called The King's Mission for Every Christian. The King's Mission for Every Christian. And I just wanted to invite y'all to be meditating on four questions, and to actually be reading this passage of scripture on your own um, in your own, you know, quiet times, and with your family around the dinner table, or get some friends together, or, but to actually engage in this portion of scripture outside of Sunday morning, um, and and have these four questions in mind, okay, as you're doing that. Number one. What does this passage teach us about our mission? Go ahead and get your phone out and take a picture of the screen right now, okay? What does this passage teach us about our mission? What does this passage teach us about how we do our mission? What does this passage teach us about what we should expect to face during it? Hint, hint, opposition, okay? (laughs) And then what does this passage teach us in regards to what type of mindsets and beliefs do we need to adopt to be successful at our mission? I'd encourage you to read this passage on your own and be meditating on those questions. Ask yourself those questions as you read Matthew 9:35 through 11, 1, Okay. But this morning, I'm gonna go through chapter 10, verses 5 through 15. But before I get there, I just wanna catch us up on the two passages before mine, because they really set the stage, and because Luke has had the privilege of preaching on them, and so I just gotta get a little bit of my preaching in on those two passages, okay? Like, Luke did a great job the last two weeks, but I just can't help myself. I gotta talk about them, too, a little bit. So let's read Matthew 9, 35 through 38, to start. And I tried to format everything a little different, for you guys so it's gonna be like you'll notice today that all the slides and scriptures on them it's very like broken up and i'm doing that to help us kind of conceptualize and track with the flow of what jesus is speaking and what, what he's saying because i don't know about you but if i just get a big paragraph of words i'm kind of like all right that means nothing to me but when you break it down a little bit you can kind of stick with the flow and catch up with there is a real message jesus is trying to communicate here he's not just Shotgunning a ton of words at us. So Matthew 9:35. Jesus is just, you know, Matthew 1 through like 4 is like a prologue to the book of Matthew. And then Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus teaching and giving this kingdom manifesto, like sharing his the, the new covenant, the new law, the new way the Christians should live. And then Matthew 8 and 9 is Jesus actually demonstrating this new way of life and demonstrating the kingdom of God. And now in Matthew nine thirty-five through 11, one, he's sending his crew out to do what he has been demonstrating. Okay? So that's where we're at in the progression of the story and in the progression of the gospel of Matthew. Verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So that's like a summary statement. Verse 35 is to summarize for us what he has been doing. It's like a, it's a, the author is shifting gears here and saying, here's what Jesus has been doing. And then listen to what Jesus says, or what Jesus notices. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So, I want to, let's just run through this really quick. My sermon's not on these these verses, but I just want to hit a couple of thoughts on it to, to tee us up for where we're going today. There's three things that, that immediately stand out to me um, from this this section of verses. First, Jesus identifies two problems. He's identifying two problems. The first is that there is a problem in the world. That's the first thing he's saying is, look, there is a major problem in the world. He saw the crowds. He looked over indiscriminately at a ton of people. It's kind of like Jesus is looking at the world. And what's he say? They're harassed. And helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You guys, there is a problem in the world. Humanity is harassed and helpless. They're leaderless. They're shepherdless. Humanity is lost. Turn on the news if you don't believe me, okay? And then a second problem he identifies. There aren't enough workers in the harvest everyone say workers Workers. say harvest there's not enough workers in the harvest so by workers he's talking about disciples of Yahweh followers of the one true God there is not enough of his equipped trained followers out in the world that's part of the problem there's not enough workers and and workers Of Jesus, do his mission. What is his mission? He's just been healing the sick, raising the dead, proclaiming freedom to the captives, writing um, social injustice, bringing all, all kinds of amazing stuff Jesus has been doing. So he's saying there's not enough people doing what I've been doing, not enough workers. And then, harvest. What's the harvest? The harvest is referring to lost, helpless, harassed humanity. We see We look at the world and we see a problem, Jesus looks at the world and he sees an opportunity. We look at the world and we see how hard it is, Jesus looks at the world and he sees a ripe harvest ready to be picked. And I think it's important that we note what Jesus does say the problem is so that we can all realize what the problem is not. Because I don't know if you're like me, But my kind of default thinking a lot of times is that people are not interested in the gospel. That's kind of the way I walk around Walmart. I don't walk around Walmart thinking, man, everyone here is desperately wanting something I have. (laughs) That's just not how I think, to be honest. And another another kind of uh, thought I fall into is that people are good. People are okay. Like, you know, things are all right they look happy, they got money, you know, that cheeseburger is really good in their mouth right now, whatever, like, their family is nice, look at their nice car, they're smiling. And I kind of just think people are, people are in general okay. But that's not what Jesus says. He actually says the harvest is ripe and people are in big doo-doo. <laughs> the harvest is ripe and people are in big, big trouble. Humanity is harassed and helpless. See, when it comes to doing the work of evangelism and doing the work of the kingdom, we need to identify the mindsets that are inhibiting us from doing evangelism. What are the mindsets that are keeping us from actively having a burden, actively stepping outside of our comfort zone and looking out to the world around us? And I think these are two of the common ones, that the harvest is not ripe, (laughs) that people are not interested, and that people are in generally in general, they're, they're kind of like, okay. So can we just reject those lies really quick? Just say, it with me, I reject the lie that humanity doesn't need the gospel. I reject the lie that in general, people are not ripe. That the harvest is not ripe. I reject that lie. Come on. And then here's the third thing I notice. And this is very counterintuitive. This is classic upside down kingdom. The first action Jesus wants his disciples to take in regards to these two problems the problems of humanity's lostness and the lack of laborers those are the problems, Jesus says. Humanity is lost, and there's not enough people going after lost humanity. Those are the problems. What does Jesus say the very first thing they should do is pray? pray. The first thing he doesn't say is to go the very first thing he says to do is to pray. Now, he, if we go on just one verse, he literally tells them to go. He, he sends them. So it's not that one is more important than the other or that one replaces the other, but it's that there is a order in the kingdom of God when it comes to reaching lost humanity. And the place it all starts is our secret place, our prayer life, and us being dependent, utterly dependent on Jesus, starting from a place of weakness. It, it's going out into the community, that's, that's kind of like strength. Like, I'm moving my body, I'm talking, I'm doing things. Sitting down and just praying, oh God, like just throwing words up into the sky, you know? We know that's not what we're actually doing. We're, our prayers are powerful and they have spiritual substance, but that's a place of weakness. So, we're actually supposed to start from a place of weak dependence on Jesus when we want to reach the world. Start in a place of weak, humble dependence on Jesus to reach lost humanity. And that's what prayer causes us to do. Now let's read chapter 10, 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bar. Isn't that cool that immediately it's two brothers? Jesus calls families to ministry. He calls families to ministry. Immediately, two sets of brothers. Isn't that so good? Like, it's families that God is commissioning. And, And the good news is, if you don't have an earthly family to a biological earthly family to partner with for the kingdom of God, you have this family right here. You have your brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So no matter what, it's about partnering with family to advance the kingdom. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So man, Luke took us to school last week, didn't he? Who was here last Sunday, like, that was so good. He killed it. I'm not gonna spend too much time on it, but his four main takeaways for us, which were so good, were, number one, the mission of the kingdom, that what this passage teaches us, what we can take from this passage, is that the mission of the kingdom is the fulfillment of the mission of the people of Israel. The mission of the kingdom is the fulfillment of the mission of the people of Israel. And why this is key is because it helps us attach ourselves to a grand narrative. It reminds us that we are living in one very long story. We in this room are not disconnected from history. What has happened before us matters. We are building on their foundation. And Jesus selected 12 brothers from a man named Israel. And then he grew an amazing nation that had a destiny of being a royal priesthood. And they didn't do so hot. (laughs) You know, Israel doesn't do super well. But then Jesus comes back and says, no, I'm gonna pick the ball up and I'm gonna keep this going. I'm gonna fulfill God's plan for Israel. Jesus fulfills God's plan for Israel. And this is like a symbolic prophetic way that he's doing it by selecting 12 new elders. 12 new brothers, 12 apostles, 12 new tribes of Israel, if you will, and sending them out to do his work. Number two, the mission of the kingdom is apostolic. Apostolic meaning that by nature, this is a mission where we are being sent to represent another person and his message. That's the DNA of what we do. Number three, the mission of the kingdom is accomplished by a community. I was just hitting this, but he doesn't just select one, he selects 12. Also note this, that this could be me reading into the text, but I think this is a good way to look at it. What we're seeing right here is the very first church ever being formed. Could this be the very first church that was ever formed? Jesus gathered a group and said, this is, we're, we're gonna fellowship together around me, around Yahweh. What's a church besides that, you know? But notice that, the if I'm right, that the very first church was formed for a purpose outside of itself. Amen. The church was formed for a purpose outside of itself. The church wasn't formed to come to Sunday morning services. The church wasn't formed to take CSSM. The church wasn't formed to take SOPM. The church wasn't formed to... Be on the worship team. The church was formed to advance the kingdom of God to lost humanity. Yes. We gather to encourage one another. We take classes to get equipped so that we're effective at our mission. But the church was formed for a mission. It's easy to fall asleep to that in America because we have so much privilege as Christians in America. Like we're able to gather in this big room. The government smiles upon us and gives us tax-deductible status. In China, they don't have tax-deductible status, okay? In Iran, they don't have tax-deductible status. In Iran, they can't gather like this. And yet, the church is killing it because the church is at its best when it's on its mission. The church is at its best when it's on its mission. Number four, the mission of the kingdom includes men and women. Men and women. It can be a little bit of a head tilt to us when we read this and see that he only select, that he selects all, all uh, men. But there's cultural reasons. And, and Jesus, what he's doing is he's meeting society right where it's at. Okay? He, that, that's kind of like by nature what Jesus does. You know, he came into human flesh. He came and met us where we were at. He didn't say the standard is that women are fully empowered, so I'm gonna select 12 women, and then no one listens to his ministry. He selects 12 men, he empowers women repeatedly throughout the gospels, and then we see in the, in the rest of the New Testament this trajectory of women just becoming more and more and more and more empowered. The curse being more and more and more and more undone in how the world and in how religion views women, all the way to the point to where the very first person that gets to hear the news that Jesus has risen from the dead, and the very first person to go and share with his special 11 apostles that he has risen from the dead is a woman, (laughs) okay? So um, the mission of the kingdom includes men and women. (coughs) Let's just go home right now, (laughs) all right? What else do you need? So, Matthew 28, I mean, sorry, let's get into Matthew 10, 5 through 15. And as we enter into today's passage, hold hold up one second, Denise, sorry, I know I set you up for that. I want you to kind of like pause and reimagine yourself for a minute. Close your eyes if you need to. And just reimagine yourself as a 21st century missionary to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your family, to your sports teams, to your college, to your friend group. And what we're doing this morning is we are gonna kinda like recapture and rediscover principles on how we are supposed to do our missionary journey. That's what we're gonna get out of verses five through 15. We're gonna recapture the original way that Jesus, this is the, what we're about to read is the first missions trip, okay? This is the first group of people, this is the first solo ministry trip that the apostles have ever done. So far they've always been doing it with Jesus, now they're being sent out to go do it on their own. And so like, let's read it with a desire to um, be challenged in how we think about evangelism be challenged in how we think about mission and to recapture wherever we've kind of strayed off of the way that Jesus originally sent his crew out to do his work. So let's read it now. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions, and I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then I'm going to unpack principles and overall strategy that um, the leadership of this church is really getting excited about when it comes to evangelism. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, free that you have received, freely you give. Leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Last verse. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. All right. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven key principles, eight, nine, ten. Ten key principles I want to pull out. Does that sound okay to you guys? Before I do that, let me just make a note on verse 15. Truly I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. What's Jesus talking about here? What's the deal with this statement? I think what's going on is so what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, terrible evil sin was happening there. You know, like gang rape was literally the, the sin that was... Um, trying to happen as, Jesus, as, as Yahweh ju- ends up judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And what Jesus is trying to say is this. You know, I, I know all y'all Israelites think Sodom and Gomorrah is super evil, but I want to tell you what's really evil. Rejecting Jesus. Like, that looks bad and everything, but what's actually guaranteed to bring judgment on you will be not receiving Jesus. And he's speaking of eschatological, end times judgment. Not like, if you don't receive Jesus tomorrow, you're going to get a flat tire. If you don't receive Jesus tomorrow, you're going to get cancer. Not that type of judgment. Like, when this world ends, if you're not one of those who have received Jesus, you will receive judgment. And one of the good things about this is saying, like, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, like, can be reached. Because it's not about how horrible their behavior is. It's about will they receive Jesus or not. So like think of the darkest person on earth or the most, the most evil person or the person you just think is evil, you know? Their great sin is actually probably not the things that you don't like about them. Their great sin is that they don't know the lover of their soul, <laughs> that they don't know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So here's the principles. Verse five, not everyone is our audience. Verse five says this, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Not everyone is our intended audience for our mission, for you specifically. Between all of us, everyone is our audience. That's why we need the whole body of Christ. But my audience is not your audience, is not your audience, is not your audience, is not your audience. audience. And that's encouraging, like, and Jesus models this. Jesus resisted ministry to the Gentiles because that wasn't his designated audience. Paul experienced this. He was forbidden from preaching the word in Asia because that wasn't his audience. So principle number one, not everyone is your audience. Principle number two from verse six, you do have an audience God has called you to, okay? You do have an audience God has called you to. See my above point about Jesus. Jesus was called to the Jews. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that in Ephesus, there is a wide open door to him. That's what he says there. In Acts 19, Paul has a vision of Jesus, and Jesus says, I have many people in this city. Paul's in Corinth, and he's worried about, should I stick around here or not? And Jesus, person says, I have many people in this city, stay here. Peter is called directly to Cornelius in Acts 10. Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. This should encourage, motivate, and focus us. It means we do have an audience. There are people that only you can reach, that you are destined to reach. And then there's other people that you are destined to reach, and I'm not, and you're destined to reach this other person that I'm not. Like, Do you see how it works? It takes the whole body of Christ... To reach lost humanity. Verse seven, principle three, we're supposed to do this ministry as we go. As we go. Robbie Dawkins is the first person that really turned my mind onto this that kingdom ministry and power evangelism is really done, done best as we go. Jesus told them, As you go, heal the sick, proclaim the gospel, raise the dead. Da, 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 da. So, how I think about this is, Let's break evangelism maybe into two boxes intentional, or, or let's break living missionally into two boxes intentional and unintentional. Intentional is when you like go out prayer walking a community looking for people to pray for, or you go out with your class in CSSM, like we send them out into the community to pray for people. That's intentional. Unintentional is just going about life and being moved to pray for someone as you're picking up broccoli from Kroger, or as you're in conversation with a coworker and they tell you about the hard thing they're going through, you feel, you decide, oh, I'm going to share with them the good news that Jesus loves them, or whatever, you know. So Jesus is putting an emphasis that we should lean into the latter, the as-you-go type of ministry. Dustin's team that went to Albania, the whole Albania mission team, really put like a, they, they bolded, underlined, and put exclamation points around this for me. Do you guys remember a couple months ago when they were sharing about their day in the restaurant and all the amazing breakthrough and the salvation and the, the power and the, um, the way the kingdom broke into that restaurant? They didn't go to that restaurant to do ministry. They didn't go to that restaurant to do evangelism. They went to that restaurant to eat food, and then they just did what they wanted to do while they were there. Dustin and I were talking about this and he said a statement that I think is like a huge prophetic word for our church. Dustin said, we need to look at everywhere we go as a ministry opportunity. We need to look at everywhere we go as a ministry opportunity. Not kingdom pursuit ministry time as a ministry opportunity. You know, not Sunday morning prayer line as our ministry opportunity, but just life as we go as our main ministry opportunity. Jesus modeled this, you know, he intentionally, he does the intentional thing where he gathers people, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches. But then think about how much of Jesus's ministry happens through interruption. He's just walking along and someone comes and says, please help me, my daughter, she's dying, please help. He starts to go and try and help that person, and then someone else grabs him and he feels power leave his body, and that person's healed. And then he goes on and raises his little girl from the dead as he's going. Jesus just looked at all of life as a ministry opportunity. On, on Friday, just a really quick example of this to put it even more in perspective in my life. On Friday, a guy was delivering DoorDash to the church. I was like, perfect, I'm gonna go pray for this guy, share the gospel with him. I mean, what's he expect? He's in a church, like, come on. (laughs) And I go up and he speaks zero English. He's Uzbeki, and he pulls out his phone and we start translating back and forth and ends up swapping numbers, because he's a Muslim. I told him, dude, I know Muslims love Jesus. If you ever wanna study stories about Jesus, hit me up, here's my phone number, and numbers are transferred. That was just me as I go. I wasn't looking to pray for people at, in the church building that day. DoorDash guy, opportunity presents itself. I feel led, I respond. It's just an as we go type of thing. Verse seven. Second point from verse seven. Fourth point overall. We are supposed to proclaim something, we have good news to share. I've been trying to think of a way to uh, remind ourselves that the gospel is fundamentally an announcement and not a doctrine. It's fundamentally an announcement about history before it's a theology or a doctrine. What I mean by that is, did you guys know that there's this guy named Joe Burrow? He's taken us to two AFC championship games in a row and one Super Bowl and we came three points away from going to overtime in the Super Bowl he took us to. Imagine telling that to your grandfather who died in 2009 when the Bengals were 1 in 17. (laughs) Like, how good of news that would be to the person who's hearing it. That's how we can think about the gospel. Like, I have this really exciting, good historical news to share, this real news to share. I want to go proclaim it. I want to go share it. And a little thing I've been doing just a little to make this um, make more sense in our Western context where surely pretty much everyone has heard the name of Jesus usually in America. I, this is what I've been saying to people before I share the gospel with them. I've been saying, hey, I'm sure you've heard about Jesus before, right? And they go, yeah. I go, well, can I just share with you kind of a way I've been looking at it lately? And then I share the gospel with them. And it's a way to kind of go low and to not come and be like, let me preach to you real quick, stranger. You know, like, I'm gonna honor you and recognize you're a human who knows things, in America especially. You've probably heard the gospel before, but they still need to hear it and, and, and respond to it. So I start with that little comment. Hey, you've probably heard the good news before. Have you ever heard? You've probably heard about Jesus before, but I want to show this to you really quick, and then you can go into a gospel presentation. Verse 8, we're supposed to demonstrate that what we proclaimed is a physical reality. We all know this. Everyone just say amen to that point. We are the champions of that verse, okay? School of Prophetic Ministry, Cincinnati School of Supernatural Ministry, Student Revival is going after it, Northwest Kids is going after it. We just worship forever. We're going into the spirit like, let's just carry the spirit with us as we go share the gospel. You know, let's pursue manifesting our message. Another point from verse 8. The gospel, how did I put it up here? The next point from verse 8. The gospel of the kingdom is supposed to be free. Let's just remember that, okay? The gospel of the kingdom is supposed to be free. Verse 8, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. This is free, okay? This is free. It's not to be charged for, to hear the gospel. It's not wrong to charge someone to come to a conference or to come to a class, but obviously it would be very wrong to charge people to hear the news and to receive prayer. Verses nine, and verses 9 and 10. There's a lot here, but for the sake of time, this is what I want to pull out. Jesus is saying, go in a state of weakness and need. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey, your extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. That's counterintuitive, right? Right? Like, shouldn't we load up with extra energy bars and a camelback and our concealed carry? You know, like, isn't that how we should do it? No. (laughs) He says, don't take a rod for self-defense. Don't take extra money. Don't take extra um, change of clothes. Like, go in a state of weakness and need and humility. That's what Jesus did by coming to earth, taking on This weak human flesh that we all wear. Jesus did that himself. So the phrase that we've been loving is this. Lead with your need. Lead with your need. So what this means is don't seek to lord power and status over those you want to minister to. And this is just practical wisdom. Who likes to be lorded over by a stranger or by a friend even? None of us, right? So let's consciously go in in a place of weakness and humility and even neediness. And what we're doing when we go needy is we're disrupting the power dynamic. There's no power dynamic now where it's like, I have the thing you need, you better listen to me and get it. But we're coming in saying like, I know I have something that you need, but you also have things I need. And I want you to know that I know that, and I even wanna let you serve me so that we equalize the power dynamic. Do you get what I'm saying? This is one of the most uncomfortable, off-putting things about evangelism oftentimes is the power dynamic of the savior and the prisoner. You know? So let's equalize that by leading with our need. How this has practically worked out for me, my neighbor who I've become really good friends with, and I'll share with you guys more of his story, but he has helped me so much fix up my house. And he's just offered all kinds of different ideas about our house, different things we need to do, like put aluminum tape all around our HVAC system in the basement where air's leaking out and um, he fixed my lawnmower for me. Like there's all this stuff I'm receiving from him. I'm developing relationship. I'm, I'm getting into a place where it's not like Wilson has all of the goods and Jonathan better listen. This is a wisdom. This is important for us to grab hold of to be successful at our mission. So let's look at verses 11 through 14. And by the way, today is, a, is part one of a two part message. I'm introducing what I'm going to show you in a second the person of peace concept. And Luke is going to take us deeper into it next week and show us where else it emerges in Scripture. So, check out these three phrases search there for some worthy person, give it your greeting, and listen to your words. So, we've talked about the things we should do as we're going on the mission. Now here, Jesus is saying who to look for on your mission. He says, search for a worthy person. How do we identify a worthy person? Well, first of all, we need to give our greeting to someone. And I think that this can, we can really way overcomplicate what Jesus is saying here. What I think he's really saying fundamentally is, don't wait for them to come to you, you go to them. You give the greeting. You initiate. You initiate. That's the only way you're gonna find worthy people is if you go after them, you give a greeting. And then how do you know that they're worthy? Well, they're listening to you and your words. If they're receiving you and receiving your message, they might be a worthy person that Jesus is telling you to go look for. Next, stay at their house until you leave. Counterintuitive, right? Don't um, jump around house to house. Don't search for as many people as you can find. Find one and stick with them. And honestly, this also implies relationalness, like stay at their, um, stay at their house. That's pretty intimate. So what Jesus is saying is, we're called to develop real relationships with those that we are supposed to um, help disciple. Real relationships. And you gotta have margin in your life to be able to do this. Some of us, I used to be this, I'm trying to work on it more and more, is I was just too busy to obey the Great Commission. I didn't have enough margin in my life to obey the Great Commission. You gotta have margin in your life if you wanna obey the Great Commission. Last, Jesus says, let your peace return to you and shake the dust off your feet. This is a huge relief because what it means is that when we're rejected, it's okay to, number one, identify it, And then number two, to walk away physically and emotionally from that rejection. When you get rejected, and you will, walk away. First of all, identify. That's what just happened. I was just rejected for the gospel, okay? Now, first thing is you have to be a nice, normal person to make sure you're not being rejected for being a mean religious person, okay? So be a nice, normal person, and then you'll know that I'm being rejected for the gospel and not for my whatever. But... You're rejected. Number one, identify it. Number two, Jesus says to walk away from it physically and emotionally. Shake the dust off your feet. This is a symbolic act, it's a release. It's saying that, hey, I'm not going to carry the weight of being rejected. I'm not going to walk away here and carry the weight of this person rejecting me. I'm not going to take it personally. I'm not gonna let it impact my identity as if I have done something wrong, as if I have failed, as if I'm not effective at the mission. And I'm not gonna let it change how I think about the rest of lost humanity. I'm shaking the dust off. I'm letting it go. Other people are still harassed and helpless and needy and gonna be open to me. But I need to identify who's not so I, so I can move on and not carry the weight of it with me. <coughs> So, verses 11 through 14, what they're um, the basis for, along with Luke chapter 9 and 10, and then some passages in Acts, is what many call the person of peace strategy. The person of peace strategy. Just by a show of hands, who's ever heard of that before? The person of peace strategy. All right. So, that should scare all of us. Because this is the way that we're supposed to do the mission. Okay? Like, not to be too bold, but like, this is the way that Jesus sent his guys out to do it, and 10 of us raised our hands. So this is is good. That means that if we can grab a hold of this, we're going to start seeing a much bigger harvest than any of us have ever seen before, is what that tells me. That if we as a church can adopt this mentality of, I'm going to look for persons of peace, we're going to actually see every chair in this room full of new believers getting baptized, learning how to obey Jesus. Here's the definition. The evangelism strategy extracted from the New Testament that calls for us to look for a person of peace and then invest our time in them. That's my definition of the person of peace strategy. The evangelism strategy extracted from the New Testament that calls for us to look for a person of peace and then invest our time in them. Who, a while ago we had a guy here named Scott McNamara. And Scott McNamara and Jesus of the Door was teaching us the person of peace strategy without calling it that. Because what he was saying was, not everyone is your apple, go after the ripe apples. What he meant was, if we look at all of lost humanity, like apples on an apple tree, we don't go up to an apple tree and pick a small green tart apple and rip it off the tree, right? No, we go and find the, tr- find the apples that we just barely touch and it pops right off. That's Jesus' evangelism strategy. Go after those who are just waiting to be grabbed and shook and loose and brought into the kingdom. Something I think we gotta note is that this is kind of like the opposite approach to that of a crusade. And crusades have heavily impacted, big group gathering has heavily impacted how we as a evangelical Western American church look at evangelism. Get a big group of people together, share the gospel, get people to make a decision right now. That's evangelism. And then we kind of make it smaller, we go out onto the street and we just share with everyone hoping that someone will make a decision right now. Whereas Jesus says, go and find one person, be selective with who you go after and then spend time with them. Don't, there's not pressure for an in the moment decision. If, they, if they're receiving you, they're welcoming you, they're serving you, then this could be a person of peace. So for me, this really takes the pressure off of living on mission and evangelism. It's no longer our goal is to go out there and get people to say a prayer right now. We're just out there searching for the people God has already prepared for us to enter into relationship with. Think of it like this, and I'm going to define a person of peace more to close, but think of it like this. A person of peace is someone who is at a heart level ready to enter a process that ends in them becoming a disciple. It's someone who at a heart level is ready to enter a process that ends in them becoming a disciple. They're just waiting unknowingly for you and me to come to them. That's what a person of peace is. It's someone who in their heart and because of their life circumstance and because of their background, they're actually ready, but they're unknowingly waiting for us to find them and to walk with them. So what is a person of peace? Who is a person of peace? It's someone who receives the messenger, the message, and the mission. A person of peace is someone who receives the messenger, they receive you, they have you in their home. Then they receive the message, they listen to your words, and then they receive the mission. So they become a disciple, that's receiving the message, and then they receive the mission, they become a disciple maker, that's the mission. Three initial signs of a person of peace. Someone who likes you, listens to you, and serves you. This is making it extremely pragmatic. We're looking for people who like us, listen to us, and serve us. And then we're investing in them. We're spending time with them. How this has played out in my life, and I'm gonna end with this story and and we'll pray. My wife and I moved into a new home two years ago. And It was really bittersweet moving because where we had lived, we had seen so much kingdom breakthrough. Two of our, three of our neighbors got baptized, four of them got saved, just through about four years of doing life with them and being friends with them and serving them and hanging with them. And so when we moved, I was like, all right, that's my new template for what it looks like to live somewhere is long-term friendship and to go after it because there's harassed and helpless humanity out there who, who's waiting and, 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 and wanting. And so we go in to our new house and immediately I meet my neighbor who has kids, one of his kids is Haya's age, and I'm like, boom, here's my person of peace. And I just am pursuing him like crazy. He's, he's not a follower of Jesus and it goes nowhere. It literally ends in a really awkward conversation between us where he's like, bro, I don't have time to hang out with you. I'm like, Roger that. I get it, okay? <laughs> I'm needy, okay, bro. <laughs> Move on to the next guy, starts with, this, with another neighbor, um, starts with this really cool encounter we have where I have a word of knowledge for him and it like really ministers to him. Like, okay, great. He was my person of peace, now I found him. And we start having lunch together and everything. And again, after a little bit, it just, the door is shut. And it's clear that this is not someone who is seeking right now. They're not discontent on the inside with their spirituality or their life. Move on to another, same thing. Then the last neighbor for me to meet, and it took me more than a year of living in my house for me to meet him, and he lived literally closer to me than any of the other neighbors. And after our first conversation, here's the text he sends me when I get home. It was a pleasure to meet you. I'll bring my girlfriend over tomorrow to introduce you. I hope we can fellowship in the future as well. I definitely want to build a relationship with God. <laughs> oh Yeah. Only thing he knows about me is that I work at this church. That's like the only spiritual conversation we had. His heart was ready, okay? A couple weeks ago, so he's joined our house group. A couple weeks when we, you guys remember when we focused on Pentecost? and we did Pentecost Sunday, and we watched Jay Pathak, and we did those messages. Well, my house group um, discussed those as well, and the night we discussed them, my neighbor got filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized in the Holy Spirit. A month ago, Patricia and I and my wife and our group baptized him. Last Friday, him and I hit the streets of College Hill prayer walking, just walking the streets, praying for God to break into that community, and it, halfway, through the con- halfway through the prayer walk, it is freaking hot. Okay. It was so hot on <laughs> on Friday. It, we meet up. We we meet this couple. Talk to them. The girl has just gotten out of rehab. She's just becoming a follower of Jesus. Her boyfriend isn't a follower of Jesus. Has all this religious baggage, but is really interested. And this Wednesday, we're meeting up at a coffee shop in college hill to read stories about Jesus. So. That's exciting, okay? That's like my candy right there. Like that's all I need to live on, all right? And it, it really all comes back to finding someone who God's already working on and then investing in them, sticking with them, walking with them. So Luke's going to take, d- take us deeper in this next week, okay? Will you guys stand and can I pray for you? Jesus, we just receive your mission, and we receive, even more importantly, we've been receiving your mission, Jesus. Like, I know that this room is full of people's hearts, full of people with hearts who are committed to your mission. They came in this morning committed to your mission. But God, I pray that that whoever is learning new strategy this morning, that you would bless that. Holy Spirit, will you hover over that in their life? Will you witness to this being your strategy by giving them breakthrough this week and finding persons of peace? We want to help you, Jesus, on your mission of saving, harassed, and helpless humanity. We will be the laborers that go out into the harvest. We will be the workers. In Jesus' name. Everyone just say that. We'll be the workers. We're with you, Jesus. Your mission, your way. We love you, we honor you, in Jesus' name, amen.